nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week. We continue our coverage of the nuclear nightmare in North St. Louis with Karen Nickel. She is a longtime resident of the area and grew up next to Coldwater Creek, focus of a citizen-led epidemiological survey that has discovered elevated levels of cancer beyond anything that can be explained away. Karen is also one of the admins for the Facebook page Westlake Landfill. And has been instrumental in helping the local residents organize to get official response and support for the dilemma in which they find themselves. We will have that interview plus our regular numbnuts of the week, nuclear regulatory commission duck and cover report, what to do to protect your car from radiation during the radiation awareness protection talk awareness minute. Activist shout out and more nuclear information than Texas Governor Greg Abbott will allow into his state, no matter what President Obama says. All of this and more coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November seventeenth, twenty fifteen, and here is the week's nuclear news from our perspective. Lots of action in the United States this week, as in New York State. The Andrew Cuomo administration has denied critical certification at Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant, citing numerous environmental and public safety concerns. The New York Department of State has filed an objection to Entergy's request for a coastal consistency determination for the Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant. The objection has the potential to knock. Energy's request for a 20-year extension of its operating license for the plant's Unit Two and Unit Three reactors, and require the closure of Indian Point as soon as next year, 2016. From your mouth to somebody's ears. In its objection, Governor Cuomo's administration highlighted many concerns over Indian Point, including the facility's massive intake. Of 2.5 billion gallons of water a day for cooling, which heats the nearby river and kills aquatic life. A dubious history of operational accidents, including transformer explosions and other component malfunctions. The nuclear power facility's location near two active seismic faults, to say nothing of the fact that it's only 35 miles from Midtown Manhattan. Risks of catastrophic events due to flooding and sea level rise. Risks regarding the storage of on-site nuclear waste in overly densely packed spent fuel pools, 
and radiological leaks from spent fuel pools and other components, which have already resulted in large plumes of groundwater contamination under the site that leach into the Hudson River. Shut down Indian Point now. Put it and us out of our misery. In Los Angeles, a report from NBC4 News revealed that tens of thousands of children who attended a popular camp in the hills northwest of Los Angeles over the last 65 years may have been exposed to radioactive waste and toxic chemicals from a former nuclear and rocket testing facility right next door, the infamous Santa Susana Field Lab. The Brandeis Bardeen Institute sits on a 2,800-acre site next to Simi Valley. It is a world-famous center for Jewish learning and runs Camp Alonim for kids and teens and hosts retreats for college students and adults on the site. But it is just over the hill from the former Santa Susana Field Lab, where for years barrels of radioactive waste were buried in a pit right above the Brandeis property, and that radioactive smoke often blew towards the camp. The radioactive nature and risks of their neighbor to the south were kept from administrators and staff at Brandeis Bardeen. They were constantly assured that they were safe. But the NBC4 team located a 1997 report done by a scientist, Joel Sane, who had worked for Brandeis for years to monitor contamination on the land. In this report, Sane wrote that after reviewing studies of Brandeis, in his opinion, quote, Brandeis property is contaminated with radiological and chemical contaminants. Contaminated groundwater is moving towards the center of the Brandeis property, and some of this water is contaminated with tritium, strontium-90, and dioxins. Among those accused of covering up the information of the danger was past chairman of the board, Judge Joseph Wapner, of TV's People's Court. And now it's time for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Duck! And cover report. The NRC has revealed that during April's refueling at Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, 10 contracted workers entered the main condenser of the reactor to deal with a faulty gasket without wearing proper protective gear. All 10 were contaminated, and after full-body measurement of radiation levels, five were found to have radioactive contamination. That was only one of five violations picked up in an analysis of Pilgrim's performance during the first quarter of this year. (coughs) The NRC is increasing its oversight of Unit 1 at the Sequoia Nuclear Power Plant near Chattanooga, Tennessee, as a result of the frequency of unplanned shutdowns at the facility. The NRC cited one trip at Unit 1 in the first quarter of this year and three trips in the third quarter. As a result, Unit 1 crossed the green-to-white threshold for the unplanned scrams per 7,000 critical hours performance indicator, which is a convoluted way of saying that it is now at level 2 of a four-level color-coded system that shows the increasing order of safety significance. As the significance increases, the NRC heightens the level of oversight for that facility, The inside joke being, of course, that the word oversight has two meanings. 
It can mean overseeing, as in monitoring and managing. And it can also mean overlooking, as in not really paying attention to what's right before your very eyes. I wonder which one the NRC means in this case. (coughs) Entergy Nuclear, which operates the Palisades Atomic Reactor on Lake Michigan, has applied to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for weakened safety regulations to accommodate Palisades' continuing operations, despite having the single worst embrittled reactor pressure vessel in the United States and other forms of severe and worsening age-related degradations. Palisades has operated for nearly 45 years and is located on the Lake Michigan shoreline in Covert, Michigan, right across the lake from Chicago. They have been opposed in this by an environmental coalition consisting of Beyond Nuclear, Don't Waste Michigan, Michigan Safe Energy Future, and Nuclear Energy Information Service of Illinois. They've been represented by Toledo attorney Terry Lodge and served by expert witness Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer of Fairwinds Associates. However, last Tuesday, November 10, the NRC commissioners voted to deny the Environmental Coalition's appeal while ruling in favor of Entergy. Hey, Chicago, does that make you feel any safer? Because that's this week's Nuclear Regulatory Commission Doc! And cover report. Regular listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat will recall the report from last August of a report issued by the University of Nebraska in Lincoln showing that water in the Oglala or High Plains Aquifer, it's known by both names, which underlies eight states and provides drinking water for six million people, was showing contamination by uranium at levels up to 89 times that of the highest levels allowed by the EPA. A listener alerted me to a story about McCook, Nebraska, and their water treatment facility, which has been in place for five years. Now, McCook is definitely above the Oglala Aquifer, and yet the uranium in their drinking water was at levels of 16 parts per billion, which is almost half that of the maximum contamination allowed of 30 parts per billion, and much lower than 89 times that, which is math I don't want to get into right now. The question for all other parts of the country where groundwater and drinking water and agricultural water may be contaminated by radiation is, what are they doing that's so right and how can you do it real fast? We'll get you that story when we can. But now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out of week. Ah, the U.S. National Parks. Those last bastions of nature, preserved virtually intact in all their splendor for generation upon generation to enjoy. The Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Sequoia, Denali, the Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project? That's right. As of last Tuesday, November 10, Energy Secretary Ernest Moni Moniz and Interior Secretary Sally Jewell signed an agreement creating the, are you ready, Manhattan Project National Historical Park. Mm -mm -mm. 
Nothing like a site that commemorates the creation of the most deadly technology on Earth and that still poisons millions with enough unremediated radioactive crapola to make John Muir want to roll over in his grave. But wait, did I say sights? Nay, I err. How about sights? That's right, three, count them, three separate sights. Y-12 in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where uranium for the bombs was separated. The Hanford site in Washington State, where plutonium was manufactured from that uranium. And Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, where it all came together and the bomb was designed and assembled and got that plutonium ready to be put to good use. It's the trifecta of nuclear nightmares, all being created as an historic monument to commemorate one of the worst experiences in the history of the human race. Even more bizarre? Last week, the Interior Department convened a private scholars forum of 21 experts from across the United States and Japan, those happy recipients of this technology that's being commemorated, And so many people have first-hand knowledge of the subject of these sites. This Scholars Forum was brought together with the aim of bolstering the credibility of how the government will tell the story of the Manhattan Project. Oh, yes, do get Japan's input to this, especially the Hibakusha. Addressing a briefing at the State Department that was packed with Japanese news media, Vic Knox, a facilities and planning official at the National Park Service, said the Manhattan Project Park is, quote, being created to remember and learn from this event, which changed the history of the world. He neglected to add, not for the better. But here's the thing. The National Park Service Organic Act of 1916 has as its mission, and here I quote, to promote and regulate the use of the national parks, which purpose is to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein, and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. So what kind of enjoyment can we find if we go to one of these three sites? No trees. No breathtaking natural vistas. No waterfalls or wilderness. No wildlife. No dispersed camping either, and don't you dare take a souvenir rock because you never know where it's been or what it's been. Just an unnatural national park filled with propaganda and commemorating grief. Pro-nuclear forces in our government who backed this proposal to its current place have no shame, no empathy, no heart. And that's why everyone behind this travity of the attention of the National Park Service is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. On up to Canada where Ontario Power Generation wants to build a nuclear waste dump less than one mile from the shores of Lake Huron. That deal was a slam dunk under previous Prime Minister Stephen Harper, but since the election of the new Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, hope has risen that this exercise in nuclear insanity can be stopped. 
Now, Michigan's two U.S. senators and 10 of its 14 U.S. representatives have wasted no time in signing a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau, urging his government to deny the necessary permits that would allow this travesty to take place. Footnote to history, the four representatives who did not sign on are all Republicans. As regards the United Nations Conference of Parties, or COP21 Climate Conference, which is still scheduled to take place next month in Paris, though under some diminished circumstances, a press release that just went out lists top climate scientists, Dr. James Hansen, Dr. Tom Wigley, Dr. Ken Calderia, and Dr. Carrie Emanuel as scheduling a press conference. The problem? A major part of what they're going to be speaking of is to advocate for increased use of nuclear power. While these scientists are appropriately respected for their climate science work, it is clear that they are poorly informed on nuclear power and energy issues and have paid absolutely no attention to the deadly radioactive waste that is left behind when nuclear facilities split the atom to generate heat, to boil water, to make steam, to make energy. That's what it does, folks. That's it. A brilliant response to Hansen et al. has been written by Michael Marriott, president of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, and we'll have a link to it up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 230. And in New Zealand on November 17, about 150 protesters blockaded the annual New Zealand Defense Industry Association Conference. Groups represented include union activists, LGBT rights campaigners, anti-war activists, and at least one representative of the anti-nuke community in the form of Kevin Hester, who is a longtime nuclear hot seat regular. 28 people were arrested, but according to Kevin... They just settled on giving me a smack on the side of the head. Knowing how hard-headed Kevin can be in his activism, our sympathies go out to whatever it was that hit him. We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to help us keep going and keep growing. We have monthly operating expenses, There are more changes we want to make to the website to make it even easier for you to navigate your way around. And there's some travel in the next 12 months that I think is important to get on the schedule and be able to follow through on so I can bring you the nuclear stories with eyewitness reports as they are happening. If you wish to donate and help support this show, You can do so by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. You can donate through PayPal or directly from your credit or debit card. And if you prefer not to donate online, and I know who you are, email info at NuclearHotSeat.com for a snail mail address where you can send your donation the old-fashioned way. Whatever you can do to help, you have my gratitude. Karen Nickel is a longtime resident of the North St. Louis area who grew up close to Coldwater Creek. Since 2012, she has been involved in fighting for appropriate action to be taken to clean up the Westlake landfill with its Manhattan Project-era nuclear waste and the radioactively contaminated areas adjacent to Coldwater Creek. 
Along with John Chapman, who was interviewed on Nuclear Hot Seat number 227 three weeks ago, Karen is the admin of the very informative and extremely well-run Westlake Landfill page on Facebook. Karen Nichols, thank you so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, E.B. I'm so glad you called and so glad we could have this time to talk about this. Let's get started with what area of North St. Louis you live in now and how long you have lived in that area. For the past 20-plus years, I've lived in the Maryland Heights area. I'm about oh, 1.8 miles away from the Westlake landfill. And I understand that you grew up in that area as well. I actually grew up in the part of North County in Hazelwood, which is about three or four miles from where I am located right now. I grew up close to Coldwater Creek. Explain to people the connection between what we've been hearing about the Westlake landfill and Coldwater Creek. There's a lot of leftover nuclear weapons waste from the Manhattan Project era that St. Louis played a role in processing the uranium for the first atomic bomb. And so the leftover waste from the making of, you know, the processing of the uranium for the bomb has been just say, scattered all over St. Louis through the years. When we say Coldwater Creek, is that something that is separate from what's going on at the Westlake landfill, or is that simply another aspect of the contamination and how the contamination has been spread? It's another aspect of the contamination. The waste that ended up in the Westlake landfill is actually waste from a food wrap site, which came from Laddie Avenue in the airport, so the same contaminated materials have ended up now in the Westlake landfill. How much did you or your family know about this radioactive waste as you were growing up? My parents had no clue. We lived closer to the city of St. Louis up until the time I was nine years old. And my parents wanted to move out to the county, better school district and more opportunities bigger neighborhood with, you know, more children. So they saved and saved, and finally they were able to purchase their home in a quiet neighborhood, kind of secluded, safe. They had no idea that any of this was going on, no idea that the creek was contaminated. We had the creek in our neighborhood, and we had two parks in our neighborhood. One was at one end of my street, and the other, and St. Sen Park was at the other end of my street, which was also on the banks of Coldwater Creek. You know, the creek would flood up into the neighborhood, up into the park all the time. The kids played in the park all the time. You know, we were fortunate we had two parks to choose from. The kids mostly chose the park at the end with the creek in it. And did you play in the creek? Did you splash around? Did you swim in it? What was your relationship to this creek when you were growing up? I didn't play so much in the creek. There were a lot of times where we would walk through the creek along the banks of the creek because it would take you to McDonald's. It would take you to your grade school. The connections of where this creek would, would take you were endless. So I do know that there were a lot of kids that were on rope swings and, you know, always, always in the creek. Everybody was always in the creek. When you were growing up, was there any awareness of illness? or severe illness in the kids in the families around you? 
Looking back now, there were some issues, you know, one neighbor that the mom seemed sickly all the time. I know that there was a neighbor down the street that the kids were a little bit younger than me. I'm 52, and the kids were a little younger than me, but they had both lost their parents to brain tumors. Things like that that you think back now and you're like, wow, you know, I, I wonder if that's related. But as far as thinking as a kid on illnesses, I wasn't seeing anything with other children. When did you and your family first find out about the radioactive contamination at Westlake and its implications for Coldwater Creek? It was November 2012. Really? Excuse me. I have to be shocked at that, that your awareness of this is so recent. It was November 2012, and the day that I found out about it, I called my mom, and I'm like, Mom, do you know anything about this? Do you remember anything, hearing anything? And she said, I do not know what you're talking about. I have no clue. So, no. And I've talked to other parents from friends of mine back in the day, and and nobody that I know knew of this. How did you find out in November of 2012? Was that when the stories first started hitting about the fire at the adjacent landfill, the Bridgeton landfill? In July of 2012, I had gotten really sick. I have systemic lupus. And I'm so sorry. Di- thank you. I was diagnosed about 15 years ago, and I had went into a really bad flare, and I went to the doctor, and we talked about you know, causes for lupus and autoimmune diseases and so forth and so on. And um, he mentioned something about, you know, the environment being a trigger. And there's been a lot more studies and research going on with lupus in that area. My husband and I went home and my husband said, you know, that thing about Coldwater Creek was on the news. This was July 2012. I think it was February 2012. We had seen some little clip a creek that was contaminated. And he said, isn't that the creek that was by your house? And I said, well, yeah, you know. And he said, maybe we ought to look into that. So we did some research and we found the Coldwater Creek Just the Facts Facebook page. And I reached out to Janelle Wright. We started talking and I learned a lot about Coldwater Creek and I learned of illnesses that people were were facing. So there was a food rep meeting, an Army Corps of Engineers food rep meeting coming up. She said, well, why don't you come to that? And I said, okay, you know, and, and my mom, my mom lives two and a half hours from me now. And she said, well, I'm going to, I'm coming with you. And so we went, I think that was the beginning of November, 2012. That's when we learned about how extensive the contamination was, where it was, just for Coldwater Creek. And then after the meeting was over, there was a gentleman in the back and he said, hey, I have a flyer for everyone, and he's passing out flyers. And it was actually Ed Smith with the Missouri Coalition for the Environment. He said, I want to tell you about this landfill that has radioactive waste. And I said, oh, okay. And he told, you know, kind of told us a little bit about it. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's right by my house I live in now. For the past 20 years, I've been raising my own children, my four children, in a home less than two miles away from a radioactive Superfund site, and it's the same waste that I was exposed to as a child in Hazelwood. How did this hit you, and what was your response upon learning this information? Overwhelmed. I think that's the the best word to describe it. Just 
devastated. I was so sad and so upset and so shattered because I thought, this isn't really happening. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let that happen. No one would do that to someone, you know. And so it has robbed me of all of the innocence I have or had. It's robbed me of my childhood memories. A lot of times you think, man, I wish I could go back to being a kid. You know, life was so easy and stress-free and no worries. And all of those thoughts for me are now filled with I was being poisoned. My brother and sister were being poisoned. All of those days that we spent out in our swimming pool or all of those times that the whole family would go to the park. I played softball since I can remember, since I was four years old, I guess. I lived my life on the softball field at the park. You know, I played softball at the Berkeley Quarry League field that has been shut down and remediated or in the process of being remediated. It felt like everywhere that I went, I was touched by this exposure and contamination of some way. And on top of that, I was sick and I was going through a really bad time with my illness. It was disbelief. I couldn't believe that that would happen, that my parents didn't know. My mom feels guilty. The emotions are all over the place, and they still are. When we talk to new people about, you know, what's going on in St. Louis and stuff, and, and you can just see in their eyes that, first of all, just can't believe it. Second of all, you know that those people are going to face all of these emotions that I know for a fact have been facing for the past three years now. I'm afraid to open my mouth to ask someone how they're doing because ultimately at the end of the conversation, something or someone has been touched by this. It's gotten to the point now where I don't even go on my alumni Facebook page because every time I do, someone's passing away or someone's really sick or their parents have passed away or a sibling. It's, it's terrible. How I'm, I'm trying to be professional about this, but I'm, <laughs> I mean, I was at Three Mile Island, and many of the emotions that you are mentioning, I have familiarity with, especially the sense of betrayal by the government. Mm-hmm. But let's keep this moving forward. How and why did you become an activist on this? Well, first of all. I feel like I had no choice but to take up the issue because living in close proximity of Westlake Landfill and knowing what's going on there with the underground fire, knowing that it sits in the Missouri floodplain in Tornado Alley on an earthquake zone, all of the odds are stacked against this issue even before the fire came along. So knowing what I know, I felt that I had to do whatever I could to protect my kids. For me, that's going to the ends of the earth, to do whatever I have to do to protect my kids because I want my kids to know that I did everything I could for them, that I put up the fight, and that I wanted this to stop. My parents didn't get that chance. They never got the chance to fight for me. No one protected me. And so I will do whatever I can to protect my kids. Which, of course, is as it should be. Now, there was a social media-based study, epidemiological study, or at least outreach, to find out whether people had 
cancer or other illnesses. I believe it was done through a SurveyMonkey platform. Were you involved in creating that and coming up with the idea for it? Was this something that already existed? How did this come to be? I did not create that. There were some uh, other mothers that had found that there were a lot of illnesses within their high school, their alumni. They took it upon themselves to reach out, and they created the SurveyMonkey. They've done an excellent job in the outreach, getting people to fill this survey out and getting this information out to the public. Tell people the broad strokes of what has been discovered by this citizen activist survey going out to try and find out about illnesses in the area. We have found that there's cancers, very rare cancers, in much of North County, mostly surrounding the creek area, but you didn't have to be on the creek to be exposed. Illnesses are showing up in other places. We're seeing cancers, autoimmune diseases, infertility, birth defects, appendix cancers. I don't even know. I think they're up to 40-plus that they have had self-reported appendix cancers where you would expect to see a very small amount, 12, I think, in the whole country. You know, it's these rare cancers and these chronic illnesses that are showing up. And the zip code that I am in, there's a 302% increase in brain cancers in children under the age of 17. And that was a study that was done, included with the information that was submitted off the health survey, the SurveyMonkey but it was also for a very short time, I think from like 2006 to 2011. That I do know for sure because I know that that's an area surrounding Westlake. With the information, this horrifying information that has been compiled by the online surveys and the mothers, this is being put together by mothers, what has been done with that information and how much has it impressed the authorities or move them into actually taking action on it. With the information that the moms had collected, they were able to present that to the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. From that information, they decided, okay, well, we'll take a look at it. And their preliminary studies, they did find that there were increased rates of certain cancers. So from that, they are working on a cohort study to be done that's in the works, that's in the process through St. Louis County. What has been the impact in terms of government officials, not necessarily in the health realm, but the politicians and also the mainstream media in St. Louis to this horrifying set of statistics and information that has been put together? The media in St. Louis is covering the story, but the problem that we're seeing is it may be in the news, but it's always followed up. The story will be followed up with a quote from Republic Services. You know, it's not been as well recepted as we would have liked it to have been, but we are seeing international media and some national media now. I know it doesn't make sense that it's kind of a joke with some people. The next municipality over has no clue what's going on, but they know in Japan, you know. So 
that so often is the way that it works because there are local issues such as jobs and people's reputations and right. cash. Usually it's financially based. They don't want to lose the job. They don't want to lose the money. They don't want to be the politician who pulls the plug on the people who hold the purse string. And the same right. with the media. We never know who owns the media, and they are under certain strictures that they have to present a balanced, quote-unquote, view, even if the balance is completely unfair to the fact of the issue that is being raised. Right. And you asked about the elected officials and where that stands. You know, we're hearing a lot of talk, a lot of talk and not much action. Some of it feels as though we're being stalled. Some of it feels as though it's almost like no one knows what to do about this situation, which I don't understand because no one has a solution to the worst toxic disaster in the country. And it's getting very frustrating. You know, no one knows where all the radioactive waste is. No one knows what will happen when fire meets the waste. No one even knows the location of the distance between the fire and the waste. You know, the moms have been working so hard. I can remember when Dawn and I would be on the living room floor charting fire data because these agencies weren't talking to each other. We have worked so hard on educating elected officials. We've been to their offices. We've educated their staff. We've educated them personally. And, you know, the response is still, well, we're working on it. We're working on it. We're wanting action. We're done hearing the words. We need action. What kind of action would you like to see take place? I would like to see, first of all, the Environmental Protection Agency removed from any authority making decisions in this site. And why is that? Because right now, everything that goes on at the Westlake Landfill site is done through Republic Services. All of the scientists, all of the data, Everything is compiled by Republic Services and done by Republic Services. The EPA has never sunk a shovel in this landfill. They are the babysitting service of Republic Services. So we want the Army Corps of Engineers Fuse Rep Program, which was specifically designed to clean up Manhattan waste. They are also the ones cleaning up all of the other sites in St. Louis. We want them to be there so that they can make all of the decisions, do their own science work, be the independent to come in and make decisions, not a private company, not the polluter, not the one that's poisoning this community. They should not have the right to be submitting data and making decisions on what's going on. And the EPA, you're saying, is not having any significant impact on Republic? No, they haven't. We feel that they should be coming down harder. You know, it's been 42 years, and the EPA still does not know where all of the radioactive waste is on the site. The site's never been fully characterized. They don't have the authority to go up on that site. So they have to take the word from Republic Services. And quite frankly, Republic Services has done a pretty good job lying and trying to destroy this community. All we wanted for them to do was be a good corporate citizen, a good corporate neighbor. And from the very beginning, they've hid this fire. They're not telling the truth. The Missouri Attorney General has had to sue Republic Services for violations of air and and water violations. But every single time that he needs information that Republic's not submitting, he has to take them back to court to get them to submit the information that's needed to determine issues with the fire.
because the fire is under the jurisdiction of the state and the radioactive waste is under the jurisdiction of the federal government. So the EPA has the waste and the state of Missouri has the fire. And with bureaucrats in charge, I'm sure that they're trying to, as we've called it here on Nuclear Hot Seat before, pass the hot potato back and forth. And meanwhile, you're stuck in the middle with this danger so close by. Absolutely. And that's the problem. They can go back and forth and the potentially responsible parties, they're going back and forth with their attorneys and the EPA is going back and forth with theirs. And you have the uh, attorney general that's got his litigation going on. And meanwhile, you have an underground smoldering fire burning out of control towards nuclear weapons waste, the oldest nuclear weapons waste in the country. It's been sitting on the surface of this landfill for over 40 years. Knowing what you do now, what plans have you put in place or are you putting in place as regards your family, knowing that this fire is looking like it's going to intersect with the radioactive waste sometime in, at this point, two to five months from now has been predicted? I have been so busy doing the Just Moms stuff and working on the issue at hand. We've talked about it. I have a 14-year-old daughter that's still at home, and, you know, we've gone over what she needs to do at school. And luckily for me, she's very well-versed in this, and she makes sure that her teachers know. And um, she has a pretty good voice. And, you know, but... We are trying to get our things together that we can put somewhere else that we know will be safe. I don't really have family here, so it would be about a two and a half, three hour drive for me anyway to get out of town. But I have grown children that live here. I have grandchildren. And just the stress of trying to coordinate all of that, um, I'm not leaving my kids. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, why don't you just move away? Why don't you just, if it's bad and and you think it's bad, then why don't you just move away? Well, it's really not that easy. You know, where am I going to move to? I won't leave my grown kids and my grandkids, and they don't have the resources to move. And I wouldn't want to sell my house or leave my house to someone else with a family or anyone. You know, I wouldn't want my grown kids to do that with their homes. And where do you go? You know, it's easier said than done. If you could tell the authorities anything directly, what would you say? I would say that it's been a long time and that two moms have stepped up to the plate and dedicated pretty much 24 hours a day and other moms and dads in this community, it's not our jobs. And it breaks my heart that there's no one out there looking out for us. And I would say to them, it's your turn. It's your turn to do your job, and it's your turn to take care of my kids. This is on your shoulders. You know, our lives lie in your hands. And we're not asking for much. We want those living closest to the landfill because we have a community that lives less than a half a mile from the landfill. We want that community bought out, 
up to a mile within the fence line property. We don't want people living there. Just from the exposure to the toxic emissions coming out of this landfill alone is reason for those people to be relocated if they want to leave. We want to have a fair market value assurance plan for those of us that down the line may want to sell our homes if this fire is still going on or whatever. We want to be able to keep our tax base up and and have some hope. And the other thing is you have the ability today to sign this over to FUSREP. You have the ability today to make these decisions that will impact people for the rest of their lives. We deserve the chance. We deserve that. We deserve someone else that's experienced to go up on this landfill that can make decisions. The ones that are cleaning up the same waste everywhere else, why are we being left out? And they have the power to do this. They can sign this over to the Army Corps of Engineers Fuse Rep Program tomorrow. If listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat can help you in any way, what can they do? They could call their senators in their states or in Missouri, call our senators here, and let them know what's going on here and how concerned they are of the situation at the Westlake Landfill and ask them if they would contact the Missouri senators and and get on board to get this transferred to the Army Corps of Engineers Fuse Rep. You can get on our Facebook page. It's Westlake Landfill. You can like our Just Moms STL Facebook page. We have a website you can visit at stlradwastelegacy.com. And you can pray for us. We just want someone to help us. We're so tired of living in fear and panic and being scared and not being able to let our kids go outside. You know, a simple trip to the park is taking masks, inhalers, eye drops, Tylenol. You never know when it's going to hit you. You know, the odor coming from this landfill is unbearable. We have kids that stand out at bus stops. Their school is three or four miles down the road, and they may stand out in the bus stop in the Spanish Village subdivision right near the landfill. And when they get to school, other kids are making fun of them because they smell. This stuff gets in your clothes, in your hair. It doesn't leave your skin. It doesn't leave your nose. I want people to know that our kids are having bloody noses. We're losing our hair. We have people that are fatigued and confused and nauseous. And and for me personally, I know that because I have lupus, you know, my immune system is lowered by medicine and I have to stay that way. And getting a sinus infection, getting all of these respiratory things that go on with being exposed to this the stench and the, the toxic stuff coming out of the landfill, that's not easy for me to get over. I have a chronic illness already. And as soon as you start to get over it, here comes another big whiff of stench and you're right back to where you started from. You know, we have newborns that are being brought home into Spanish Village subdivision. Those people, it's in their homes. They can't open their windows or go outside. It's in their homes. I just want people to know that that's what we face here on a daily basis. And that's something that no one should ever have to go through. I agree. How can I do anything but? This has been a very deeply moving interview. And Karen Nichol, 
I want to thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all you're doing to help spread the word. That was North St. Louis resident Karen Nickel. You can learn more about the issues we discussed by going to Facebook and checking out either the Westlake Landfill page or Coldwater Creek Just the Facts, please. You can also visit their website, STL for St. Louis, STLRadWasteLegacy.com. Here's this week's radiation safeguarding tip from RAPT, Radiation Awareness Protection Talk. Your car's air filter works hard to take particles out of the air. When you drive through a contaminated area, it accumulates particulate matter that is toxic and may be radioactive, especially if you live near a known site of radioactivity. That's why it's important that when you get your oil changed, you change the air filter, too. Best that you carry around as little toxic or radioactive contamination as you can, and certainly not in a form that can be recirculated back into your car if it isn't cleaned out. Want more information on best practices to help safeguard from radiation? Radiation Awareness Protection Talk, or RAPT, is a six-audio series on best possible practices for safeguarding health against the ravages of nuclear radiation. It was put together by myself and certified nutrition educator Kimberly Roberson. RAPT is an extensive compilation of vetted, footnoted, verifiable information on how to best take care of yourself and your loved ones when facing a nuclear crisis. To learn more, go to RAPT awareness.com. That's R-A-P like Peter, T like Tom, awareness.com. That's where you can purchase the program, and we also have a free report available for you there. When you sign up for the free report, you will also be on our email list to receive any updates that we find about what's happening to our water, our air, and our food. Wrappedawareness.com. Activist shout-out! We, all of us, have until just Thursday, November 19, two days from now, from when I'm recording this, to register comments with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission against the petitions to change the method that they use for measuring the risks of radiation exposure. There is a proposal to turn away, shut down, stop using the long-established linear no-threshold model, the scientific gold standard with footnotes to match that states that no exposure to radiation is safe, it is all cumulative, and multiple small doses can equal a large dose in terms of the damage that it does to our bodies. Against this, the petitions at the NRC right now are proposing the radiation-denying hoax propaganda of hormesis, which I like to call, no, whoreusis, if you believe in this, that says that a little radiation is good for you, without defining what that little represents and what it does. Isn't this the kind of quackery that the FDA was formed to get rid of in patent medicines? Be that as it may, 
This switch would be devastating to all future understanding of radiation risk and the damage it does to our body, and that's why the pro-nuclear forces are pushing so hard for it. What we need are your comments. Yes, you, if you're listening to this and we haven't passed midnight on November 19, 2015, you are a person we need to make a comment, even if you live outside the United States. Now, we will have a link to the Federal Register Notice on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 230. The comment period was originally supposed to be over in September and was extended, and this site may still say that the period has been closed as of September, but it's not. It's good until November 19. To email your comments, you can send it to rulemaking.comments at nrc.gov. If you do it that way, you should receive an automatic email reply confirming receipt, and if you don't, contact the NRC directly at 301-415-1677. I guess I should have told you to have something to take notes with, but hey, this is a podcast. You can always rewind and listen to it again and stop it where you need to. If you want to fax, we're getting older in our technology here, but if you want to fax your comments, send them to Secretary, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and that number is 301-415-1101. And if you want to do it the really old-fashioned way by snail mail, I'm afraid we don't have Paul Revere or the Pony Express available right now, but you can mail comments to Secretary, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Washington, D.C., 20555-0001. And you should have on the outside attention, rulemakings, and adjudication staff. If you need information on what to say, Mary Olson of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS, who was also our guest on last week's show, has a comment kit available. You can get your very own copy by sending an email to Mary O at Nears and like Nancy I R S like Sam dot org. Mary has provided some great blocks of text that you can remodel into your own unique comment letter or just let it stand as is. And if you haven't made your comments already, please do so now. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 17, 2015. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, latimes.com, mccookgazette.com, ecowatch.com, nbclosangeles.com, capecodtimes.com, pbs.org, fukushima-diary.com, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, voicenews.com, hosted.verticalresponse.com, oddlyhistorical.com, boingboing.net, and the genuine activists of the Nuclear Hot Seat community on Facebook, which you are all invited to like. My thanks to Sean Arklight, Jim Torson, and Tom Prettyman for the stories they made me aware of. And Kevin Hester, go take some aspirin, put up your feet, and get some rest. You deserve it. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver, accompanied by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. 
Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and on StuWebRadioNetwork.com, which is formerly Veterans Truth Network. The show is also available on iTunes under podcasts. The archive is available on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, on our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, and on iTunes. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. That's the name of the show, my name, and our website. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.